good to see you guys. I know that many of you are probably facing some trials, storms, challenges, so I just want to take a moment to be silent and in an act of trust and even faith, as flimsy as it might be for some of us, just take a moment to be still, sort of, uh, if you want to, if you feel comfortable, you can sort of open your palms to God. It was an ancient practice of just opening up your palms as a way to acknowledge that these are some of the things that I'm carrying, God. I invite you to turn your palms over as a sign that, okay, now I'm just turning them over to you. Then open them again. These are some of the things that I'm carrying, fears, worries, pain, grief, loss, hopes, dreams, and then again in an act of surrender, turning them over to God. Just invite God into this moment to be with you. And our Father, we know that what we need right now is an encounter with your Holy Spirit. Some of us are in need of healing. Some of us are in need of hope, encouragement, or outright provision. And we ask that you would provide that because you are a caring, kind, loving, compassionate Father. We ask this in faith, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the text we're reading from is Matthew chapter 6. And I forgot my glasses, so forgive me as I go like this. Literally, it's this far for me. This is not for effect. The other stuff I'll do today is for effect. This is not. Verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountaintop to pray. Remember that. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. He saw them being battered as they rowed because the wind was against them. Around three in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea, and he wanted to pass them by. So odd. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Jesus gives new meaning to the phrase ghosting people. For they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and beached the boat. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized them. They hurried throughout that vicinity and began to carry the sick mats wherever they heard he was. Wherever he could go into the villages, towns, or country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch just the tassel of his robe and everyone who touched it was made well. This is God's word and thank God I can read it. 
We live in amazing times. Just this morning, on our way here, my wife and I watched, we witnessed Sir Richard Branson usher in a whole new age of space travel. For the first time ever, Richard Branson has launched Virgin Galactic, and now the average citizen will be allowed to enter into space Moms and dads, just normal people, if they, have, if they have the coin, you can enter into space. And yet for all that technology that we're enjoying and experiencing and marveling at, it's never been more difficult to trust one another. Trust has never been harder in our culture. We have, we live in a underlying undercurrent of distrust and disappointment, especially in our leaders, our government leaders, our church leaders, leaders in the workplace. Uh, I work with teams. That's primarily what I do. I work in organizational health and helping teams become healthier. And we usually test around five variables. And the most important variable we find is that if a team doesn't have vulnerability-based trust, it doesn't matter how uh, great that organization might be, if they don't have trust, they won't be a high-performing team. They won't have sustainable success. And there's a lot of things constantly challenging that trust. But think about for your faith, what challenges your trust in God most? Ran into a guy last week that I haven't seen in years <clears throat> since before we moved away to Boston. And as I saw him last week, he said, Al, I got to tell you, man, last year I got a divorce. I got remarried. I lost my job. I had health issues and I was angry at God. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. And he's only known me as pastor, so I think to really emphasize the anger that he felt and make sure that I actually knew, he was like, no, I was like really angry at God. And I said, yeah, I get it. Because storms challenge our trust. They challenge our trust. Think about the relational split that you might be experiencing, the money problems, the job loss, the hope loss, the health issues, loss of loved ones. It will challenge you to question if whatever you've been trusting in can actually get you to the other side, can get you back to joy, back to peace, back to hope. Storms challenge our trust. And I want to actually frame this story around that idea. Storms challenge our trust, and yet we need them sometimes. And we also need a way through them. Now, you might be here, and you might be challenged at the trustworthiness of this story of Jesus walking on water. And that's okay. We invite you to challenge that. We invite you to sit through that. And we'll even address that in a moment, hopefully. But for right now, I want to start with this idea, number one, that storms challenge our trust. They challenge our trust in a couple of ways. First, they challenge our trust in the guidance of Jesus. When Jesus tells his disciples to go ahead of him to the other side in the boat, at first they might be thinking, finally, we're going to get the rest that we've been needing all along. 
Because earlier in the chapter, Jesus had invited his disciples to come away with him to a mini retreat so that they could rest because up until that point, they didn't even have time to eat because they were so busy caring for and ministering to other people. And then, of course, when they get to where they need to go, all these people from the vicinity, they all rush Jesus because they all want to be healed. They hear rumors about how he's been healing people. And, of course, he's with them for a period of time. And as a result, they get hungry. And Jesus feels the need to multiply bread and to multiply the fish that he's working with. And as he multiplies bread through a few fish and some loaves, and all these people eat, and the disciples are dispersing it, that's when Jesus tells them, okay, I want you now to get into the boat ahead of me and take it to the other side of the sea. And as they're going to the other side of the sea, what happens? They find themselves in the middle of a storm at midnight. And in this storm, until three in the morning, they're rowing hard because the wind and the waves are against them. There might be times in your life, in your faith, where you have acted out of trust, you've acted out of faith in Jesus, and then you find yourself in the hardest situations that you've ever been in in life, and you think to yourself, either I was crazy for deciding this, and Jesus, you're not real, or I can't trust in your guidance. What they don't see yet, what they don't know is that on the other side in Gennesaret, they're about to reach people and they're about to bring incredible amounts of healing because of what they've gone through, but they can't see that yet. They're stuck in the storm and they're questioning the guidance of Jesus. It's not just the guidance of Jesus that is challenged for them. Their trust in the goodness of Jesus is challenged. Remember that one part when Jesus actually does come to them, he wants to pass by them. How many times have you been in a storm, a trial of some sort, and you see Jesus coming to the aid of other people, almost seemingly passing you by, and you're like two ships in the night, and you're just questioning the goodness of Jesus? Storms challenge our trust in the guidance and the goodness of God. In about 2008, I led a high school winter retreat for a, uh, a group of students up in Big Bear, California. And during the um, free time, I took my daughter, my oldest, who was then three years old, down to the wreck area. Um, there was snow on the ground. And at that point, we hadn't yet moved to Boston, so snow was still charming, cute. Um, and so as we made our way out to the wreck area... And we built snowmen, and we sledded together. We're having a great time, but what we didn't realize was that the majority of people that were on the field had left because a storm was coming. And pretty soon we looked up, and we realized, oh, everybody's leaving, and it's getting darker. And now the lightning and the thunder is crackling. We better get back. And that's when I grabbed my daughter, and I said, we better go, baby. We better go back to Mommy. And as we start making our way back to the cabin, it's about a, mi a half a mile away. That's when the questions started rising for her. The first couple are, do you know how to get back, Daddy? Do you know the way? 
And I'm like, of course I know the way, sweetie. I've done this camp so many times, I could get back like the back of my hand. We're gonna, this is the way we're going to go. She says, okay. And then she starts to freak out a little bit more, and she asks, what if we're stuck? What if, this, what if we get stuck in the storm? What if we can't find our way back? What if we die? And like any loving parent, that's when I told her, stop talking. And then I just told her, when we get back, we're going to have some hot chocolate. We're going to watch a movie. We're going to snuggle with mommy. We're going to have a fire. It's going to be great. But it didn't stop her questions. Why? Because storms challenge our trust. And the reason why that story stood out to me then is because we, my family and I, we were about to embark on a major faith journey that was going to take us away from our home area, and I was asking the same questions of God. What if I die? What if I'm stuck in the storm? What if you don't know the way? What if you're not with me? Can I trust you? And you know, 13 years later, I'd like to report to you that I'm cured of all of those questions but I'm not. I still ask the same questions. The recovery time might be a little bit shorter, right? From freak out to, okay, I'm coming back to you now. But still, I ask the questions, and probably so do you too, because storms challenge our trust. And yet we need storms at times. At times we need them. What? How do we need them? One of my favorite worship leaders He's a bit cringy, he's a bit cheesy, but he's my favorite. He has a song called Storm, and in the song it says, sometimes it takes a storm to really know the light. Sometimes it takes a storm to know how you feel, to understand indigo and the varnished sun lighting up the field. Anyway, I probably could quote the whole thing to you right now, and I would love to for effect's sake, but I want you to keep this one line in mind. Sometimes it takes a storm to really know the light. Sometimes it takes a storm to really know what you're feeling. Brennan Manning has this phrase. He says, let's say I interviewed 10 people, and I asked them the same question, do you trust God? And all 10 of them said, of course I trust God, right? In this kind of setting, we hoop and holler and blah, blah, blah. Of course we trust God, yay. How would I actually know if you were trusting God in the moment? What kind of light would be needed to be shed in order to realize? And what he says is, I would videotape each of the 10 lives for a month, And then after watching the videos, I'd pass judgment using this criterion. The person with an abiding spirit of gratitude is the one who trusts God. The foremost quality of a trusting disciple is gratefulness. The storm in this story lights shines a light on their misplaced trust. How do we know that they don't have an abiding spirit of gratitude, that they're not trusting Jesus? Verse 51 gives us a clue. When he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased, they were completely astounded. 
And verse 53, and why did the disciples marvel? Why are they astounded? Maybe it's obvious. He calmed storms. He walked on waves. Spoiler alert, Jesus will come. walk on waves and, and calm the storm here. But in hindsight, Mark notes something that the other gospel writers don't. The reason for their marveling. It says in verse 52, they were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. Even though the disciples saw Jesus feed over 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish, they still missed who he truly was. They still missed what he was doing among them. None of us has all the truth. They still missed it. They're with him. They're watching Jesus perform a miracle. Why didn't they marvel when Jesus started endlessly handing them bread and fish? Why didn't they shake their heads in amazement thinking, truly, you're the son of God, as they picked up 12 baskets full of leftovers? Why? Because they were looking for him to do something different. Multiplying or providing daily bread wasn't enough of a miracle for them. They were absorbed in what the author Walker Percy calls the everydayness of life. And there's so many times when God has provided my daily bread, and yet it's still not enough for me. I lose myself in a sense of what more I want. In fact, in his novel, The Moviegoer, Walker Percy tells a story of a commuter on the way home from his successful job. He's a man who feels inexplicably bad disproportionately to the many reasons why he should be grateful and feeling good. And suddenly he suffers a heart attack and he's removed from a train at the station. He's passed this train countless times before. And when he regains consciousness, he's in a strange hospital bed surrounded by unfamiliar people. And as his eye wanders around the room, he catches sight of the hands spread out on the sheet in front of him. It's as, if he, it's as if he's never seen his own hand before until this moment. This extraordinary thing, able to move this way and that way, fingers that open and close. And Percy goes on to speak about this awakening as a revelation, an experience of what theologians call natural grace. Through the heart attack, through the storm, the commuter's able to encounter himself and his life in a way that he hasn't for years. He's so absorbed in his own world, in his own stuff, in his own everydayness, that he needs the light of the storm to know how he feels, to what, know what he's grateful for. The event is so enormous, it's of existential importance. And what he chooses to do with that experience will be the whole burden of his future. And what you choose to do with the reality and the understanding that God is providing your daily bread, the breath in your lungs right now, and as you come back to this phase, this understanding that he has provided all that I need, all I have needed, his hand is provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. What are you going to do with that gratitude? 
For him, Percy presents this catastrophe, this storm, as a rough shaking out of sleep. It's a blast of cold air, or as the moviegoer puts it, it's a good kick in the ass. God has come through for me and provided my daily bread and probably for you in so many ways. And yet, like the disciples, I'm often looking for something different. I can easily miss God's provision. Lack of gratitude causes me to harden my heart. I misplace my trust in pursuit of security, approval, and control. And it's why Romans says in chapter 1, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made so they clearly see his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became darkened and their hearts became hardened. Sometimes it takes a storm to really know the light. And it's in this storm that we find courage. Jesus comes to them and says, it is I don't be afraid. Have courage. It's in the storm that they find compassion that they'll need for people awaiting them on the other side because they'll be less judgmental about those people out there that don't trust God because I know what it's like to be in a storm and have my trust challenged. And I'm more likely to be compassionate to the people around me when they're facing storms. Like, who are you? Who am I to judge somebody else in their hardship? It's in the storm that they find the correction that they need to channel their trust back to Jesus. So thirdly and lastly, storms challenge our trust. Yet sometimes we need them. And we also need a way through them. I see two life preservers that cause these disciples to be able to come to the other side and talk about it. It's the life preservers of, number one, an awakening, and number two, a fresh welcoming. First, the awakening. We need an awakening to who Jesus really is. Remember, the passage in Romans says, they made God into the image of what they wanted him to be. But Mark's whole goal, the whole reason why Mark writes is to answer a single question. Do you know what it is? Who is the real Jesus? He's trying to show the identity of this 33-year-old carpenter who's claiming divinity and to be the son of God. And so as he writes that, he's trying to uncover this identity of Jesus and he points to some clues. You see, each of the details that I told you to remember when we read the story, listen. Listen. Each of the details I told you to remember when we read this story are all clues that point to a deeper mystery far back in the days of Israel. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is known as the Lord of glory. And after Yahweh delivers his people from Egypt into the Red Sea, he leads them into where? The wilderness. 
And as he leads them into the wilderness, it's there that the Lord has compassion on his hungry people. And he supernaturally provides the manna in the wilderness, as you heard last week. And Mark has this in mind during the feeding of the 5,000 with the bread and the loaves. When Jesus comes walking on the sea, Mark is pointing back to the Exodus when Moses led God's people through the sea. And Moses led them as Yahweh parted the waters through dry land. But Mark is showing that Jesus is the true and better deliverer than Moses. He walks upon the sea. He walks upon the very thing that Israel feared the most, which was the darkness of the ocean. It's also alluding to Job's words in chapter 9, about a thousand years before the Israel exodus. Job talks about Yahweh, this God who, quote, stretched out the sky alone and walks upon the sea as upon a floor who made Pleiades and Hesperus and Bear and the chambers of the south winds in the heavens, who does great and inscrutable things, both glorious and extraordinary, which cannot be numbered. And listen, if he should pass by me, I would not notice. If he should pass by me, I wouldn't perceive. And what is Jesus doing with his disciples? Passing by them. What did Yahweh do with Moses when he said, show me your glory? He passed by him. It's the same word used. What is this showing us? It's showing us a a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. He's the Lord of glory. He's not only a carpenter, and he's not only a wise man, and he's not only a rabbi, and he's not only a self-help guru. And he's not just a great life coach. He's the Lord of glory. But he's also the great high priest. See, what does it say in the very first verse that we read in verse 34? When he sent the disciples ahead of them, what does Jesus do? He goes up to the mountaintop to do what? To pray. What did Moses do when he went up to the mountaintop on behalf of Israel? He prayed. He interceded for the people because they were so weak. Their trust was so challenged in trusting God. Like the great deliverer Moses, Jesus ascends the mountaintop to intercede for his people. He sees them rowing with the waves and the wind against them. He saw them being battered as they rowed because the wind was against them. Few years ago, as I, you know, when we left that winter camp, we ultimately moved to the city of Boston from the Santa Barbara County area. Can't imagine a bigger life change than moving from Carpinteria to Boston. And uh, there was a time when I was going to go on a sabbatical for three months. And right before my sabbatical, our church lost its building. You're, you're aware of what that feels like. In finding, finding a building in the city of Boston is like hunting for unicorn. Like you have a better shot, actually. And I was praying, God, I need this sabbatical. But I can't do it 
if your church doesn't have a place to meet. I feel responsible. And so our elders and our leaders got together. We were praying and pleading with God. And I remember one particular morning, two weeks before I was supposed to go on sabbatical, I read this passage, journaled these words. Have courage. It is I. I see you. I have compassion for you, and I'm praying for you. Don't be afraid. I see you and my church being battered as you row because the wind is against you. I will see you through. That Sunday night, our elders came over to my house, and we were having a meeting, and one of them said, you know, I think it's like, and he quoted the words from this passage. And I said, wait, why did you quote those words? And he said, I just have been meditating on them. I said, I've been meditating on them since Thursday. And I ran upstairs and I got this painting of Jesus walking on water as though it was just the most ridiculous thing you could do. Just brought this painting down and I said, look at this painting. Let's just sit with this painting for a bit and look at it. And let's pray that God would provide this. And we just imagined who we were, which I'm Peter. No, I'm Peter. Which one we were on the boat is ridiculous. And that next week, God provided a building for us at the 11th hour reminding me that he came through with this promise, I see you, don't be afraid, it is I, have courage. The gratitude that we felt as a church for just God providing a building was so, so powerful, carried us through quite a while. Jesus goes up to the mountaintop to pray because it says in Hebrews Chapter 7, that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant than Moses. Therefore, he's able always to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest that we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and elevated above the heavens. So I wonder right now if you'd be willing to ask Jesus, the great high priest, Jesus, do you see me being battered by the wind and the waves? Jesus, what are you praying for me right now? Are you willing to take that risk? What are you praying for me right now, Jesus? The second thing that we need to get through the storm, finally, is not just a fresh awakening of who Jesus is. It's a fresh welcoming of Jesus into the boat. There's an interesting detail that's a bit alarming. Verse 48 says, around three in the morning, Jesus came walking to them on the sea and wanted to pass them by, as we said. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. I love that little detail. Mark is so honest. You would think that these men who have been walking with Jesus for, for a couple of years now, watching him do miracles, raise the dead, provide fish and loaves for people, uh, 5,000 strong, they'd be like, oh, of course it's Jesus. He's walking on water. No, they just shout, a ghost. They go Scooby-Doo on it. It's crazy. <laughs> the text says something interesting here, though. Yeah, commentators do believe that Jesus wants to pass them by. It's the same word used as Moses when he passes by with his glory. Yahweh passes by with his glory. But I think there's something deeper here for us practically, personally. Right now, Jesus is coming toward you. And maybe you're here right now and you're wondering, why did I come here? 
Maybe you're here and you're thinking, it's a total coincidence that I'm here. Or maybe Jesus is actually coming to you right now. Maybe he's coming toward you. And maybe he's waiting to be welcomed into your boat. And you know what it requires sometimes for you to welcome him in is just to be honest about your fears. It said they cried out for fear and Jesus said to them, it is I have courage. There's no need to be afraid, son. Daughter, maybe you'd be willing to be honest about your fear and the things that's causing you to challenge your trust in his guidance and his goodness. He's the great high priest and he's the Lord of glory. It reminds us, though, that he's not just coming to us personally, he's coming to us eternally. There's so much tension that we live in right now. We live in racial tension, economic tension, political tension, ecumenical tension, temptations we give into, relational tension. But one theologian likes to say eternity starts now, meaning the kingdom of God in the last days started with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but will continue to feel the struggle until Jesus ultimately comes walking on the sky, walking on the winds and the waves and the air. And why well, don't know, we, we always experience miracles. Why do the bills sometimes go unpaid? Why do people still hurt us and we hurt others? Why don't our deepest dreams always come true? Because we're awaiting the fulfillment of God's kingdom. He was hidden, but yet he was revealed, just as God's kingdom has been revealed, but it's also hidden, and it will fully come to us, and when it fully comes to us, when Jesus returns, no more fear, no more tears, no more health issues, no more loss, pure joy. Do you believe that? And if you don't, it's okay. Just acknowledge it as you are being willing to welcome him into your boat. I find it interesting that it says in the passage that when the storm hit, the disciples did what? They rowed harder. It's interesting to me, and I could be reading into the text, but I don't see it saying they prayed harder. They rowed harder. They relied on their experience and their strength. Even they doubled down. And when Jesus came to them, they realized, oh, you're the high priest who prays for me? What would happen if I just welcomed you into what I'm experiencing faster? Are you willing to invite Jesus into the boat today? Are you willing to name your fear and the ways that you're not acting in trust or gratitude? Are you willing to say, I want you to guide me. I trust you, Jesus. We'll do that in song and through the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And then we'll be silent. But I want you to notice in verse 51, it says, then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were completely astounded. How do you know Jesus is coming to you? How do you know he's willing to get into your boat, which is so flimsy and probably so fractured? 
through the cross. The cross says he's always coming to you. The cross says no matter how broken down your boat is, Jesus is always coming toward you. Are you willing to enter into a fresh awakening and a fresh welcoming of Jesus in? I read this to you and then we'll close. It's from a passage of an author. In God's words, I want to be central in your entire being. When your focus is firmly on me, my peace displaces fears and worries. They will encircle you, seeking entrance, so you must stay alert. Let trust and thankfulness stand guard, turning back fear before it can gain a foothold. There is no fear in my love, which shines on you continually. Sit quietly in my love light while I bless you with radiant peace. Turn your whole being to trusting and loving me. So in order to do that, here's an exercise I invite you to. You can enter into it if you want to. That is, turn back every fear and worry by writing a statement of trust or thankfulness and rejoice in God's perfect love which drives out all fear. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your perfect love that casts out all fear. And we ask Jesus that as we now enter into a time where we are welcoming you, inviting you into the boat, you would increase our faith and you'd forgive us for ways that we've misplaced our trust. We've lost sight of your daily bread, your constant direction in our life. We now give this moment to you and ask Holy Spirit that you'd work in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Right now, we're gonna turn to God in times of song. It's a way that we can welcome Jesus into the boat. We also do that through the Lord's Supper. We remember the words of Jesus in scripture that on the night he died, he gave bread and wine to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he passed out a cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed in my blood. As often as you drink of this, you do this in remembrance of me. And Paul says later, as often as we do this, we do this in remembrance that he has come for us and he'll come for us again. Let's do that now in faith. The carpets are available here up front for you to come and pray. There's people in the back that would love to pray with you. We now welcome him into the boat.